Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Victor J. Chow, the founder and CEO of Three Square. Victor, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate the time. It is my pleasure. Before we get into the meat of this conversation, can we give our listeners a little bit of your background for context? Yeah, sure. My family is Taiwanese by ethnicity. We emigrated to the U.S., primarily the East Coast. And I grew up in Connecticut, which is about an hour away from New York City. And I grew up in this nice, I guess, upper middle class area, white picket fences and all that stuff. And yeah, had a great life. Thanks, you know, to my hardworking immigrant parents. Um, we started off with a restaurant that turned into several and at the end of the day, probably close to 40. And we did a lot of different foods, Chinese, Japanese, Mongolian barbecue, Subway, Baskin Robbins, all of these different uh, cuisine types. And I grew up in that kind of atmosphere. I love it. Where in Connecticut did you grow up? The actual city is called Orange, and uh, I guess it's right next to New Haven, which is where Yale University is. <laughs> I grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut. I don't know. I think I told you that the last time we were on the phone. I find that amazing. Just Trumbull, amazing. very, very familiar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How can it not be? It's right down the Merritt Parkway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty funny. Um, those who grew up in Connecticut, the minute you drop a certain name or location or city, everyone just all of a sudden clicks in. Yeah, exit 15 off the Merritt Parkway, if I remember correctly. I went to school in Woodhaven, and I think I told you this before, but all of my friends when I was growing up, all their parents were uh, professors at uh, Yale. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Sounds very familiar, like we almost have a alternate reality lives in some ways. Absolutely, and... Um, we used to sneak into Yale Bowl <laughs> off football season. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it is pretty funny. So where are you based now? I'm based in Taipei, Taiwan, where my parents are from, strangely enough. Uh, after they worked so hard to emigrate over to the U.S., <laughs> I, I took a detour and chose to come right back. <laughs> what was What is this like? Because this is a very common story, at least in my circles. I know tons of people. I actually spoke to this woman who was Vietnamese, lived in Texas. And when she was at the University of Texas at Austin, she said to her parents, I'm gonna go do an internship over the summer in Vietnam. And her parents were like apoplectic. They said, wait a second, we didn't escape from Vietnam during the war, so you could then just go back there. Like, that's not the way this works. What was it like in your family? I mean, it's a little different, yeah? Well, I mean, it's in some ways very similar. You know, the Asian stereotypes of escaping a country and making it uh, in America and then the next generation wasting it away, uh, you know, uh, for, for Taiwanese and for Asians in general, the oldest son plays a very important role in doing a lot of stuff, whether it be becoming a doctor, a lawyer or something, you know, very fancy from an Ivy League school to taking over the family business. You know, it's it's uh, it was hard for them for quite some time. I did have a very nice academic track record. I went to Boston University. I ended up on Wall Street as a banker, as a finance guy. And it's pretty hard to tell your parents, hey, I loved wearing those Brooks Brothers suits and making a lot of money, but I'm going to go back to Taiwan and check it out. And start all over again. Yeah. So um, they <laughs> were not in love with this whole idea. Uh, I think they also don't love the fact that the American side of me was like, well, I'm just giving you a heads up. 
and uh, that's what's going down. And uh, thank you so much. I want to understand this a little bit more. What is that pressure like? I presume you are the oldest son in the family. What is that pressure like? I think there is something very, very unique about being the eldest son in a very traditional family. And it's pretty funny. I do have a younger brother who's only a couple years younger than me, and he sort of got to do whatever he wanted to really do right. uh, in a lot of ways growing up and even now. Yeah, I think it's it, there's a lot of expectation involved. I will say that my parents are a bit more progressive than, let's say, the really difficult uh, families as far as, yeah, there's no discussion. There is no this or that about it. And uh, they weren't exactly happy with me in some of my life decisions early on, but uh, they sort of accepted it and that's it. And I, I treat it as such, right? Like yeah. um, they, they, they gave me the best opportunity in the world to have my own way of thinking about things and navigating through this world. And, you know, part of it is saying, yes, I am going to give up a nice fat paycheck and move back to Taiwan and do whatever it is I do. In a way, your parents were classic entrepreneurs. I mean, obviously they were moving entrepreneurs, right? But they left home, they went somewhere and started from scratch. Classic immigrant story, right? And a great story. And you kind of did the same thing in reverse. Maybe you had a few more advantages than they did. Maybe not, I'm not making a value judgment. But you went to a place that you, where you didn't grow up, I'm presuming, and where maybe you didn't understand everything and said, yeah, I'm gonna try this here. And I think that's kind of cool in a way. It is a very funny situation, right? Like uh, coming back, obviously I had the advantage of a couple of years of Wall Street money stored up. Yep. It wasn't like a rock bottom for me here. I enjoyed a very comfortable life while here at the beginning. But yeah, it, it's, it's very strange. We didn't come back to Taiwan a lot when we were kids. So right. it was this weird thing where it's foreign. It really is foreign, but it's not totally foreign. It's sort of like that old house that you grew up in that you left when you're like four years old and you seem to have a little bit of that recollection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strangely enough, you taste something and you're like, hey, it, it, it hits some, it hits me somewhere. Right? right. And it's pretty interesting, you know, these different memories, how they jog in and out as opposed to like, uh, you know, any other place. Like if I move to wherever. Right. Right. Yeah. The house is a great analogy. It's like they renovated the basement, but they didn't renovate the entire basement. So there's still that one part of it where like the boiler is. And when you open that door, you're like, I used to sit down here. I know it for a fact, even though I was so young kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when you came to Taiwan, did you have a business idea in mind? Like what was the reason you went there anyway? Well, I had to come up with certain plans, right? And yeah. one of the main plans for me to leave the States was I have to have something concrete. So I actually applied for a scholarship and I got a scholarship to study Mandarin in Taiwan for a year. Okay. So I spoke Mandarin. I write and read Mandarin fine enough for someone who didn't grow up here. But for sure, I'm not like, you know, a PhD academic in Mandarin. So that took me a year to clean up, and that's the perfect excuse to my parents in some ways and to myself that, hey, getting a free ride at one of these great schools, and I'm going to learn a lot about you know, Taiwan and my culture, and right. I'm going to go. Did you have family there? You must have, right? I had an uncle. 
yeah. singular one. Uh, <laughs> my parents were the oldest uh, in their families of five each. And if you could imagine, they went over all of my uncles and aunts, the real ones, blood relatives, they all came over too. They all got their MBAs. They all ended up working in restaurants and uh, owning restaurants. So there's only that one random uncle who was like, he went to the States for a little bit. And he's like, that's cool. I'm going uh, home. I'm coming back. Yeah, I'm, I'm going home. back. <laughs> oh, that's so great. So what did you do after you graduated from that Mandarin program? Um, I thought about a lot of stuff. And I think uh, one thing that caught my eye was what we call in Mandarin, Bushiban, which is a cram school. And it's very popular in Asia, very yeah. popular in Taiwan, where people, you know, send their kids. It's sort of an after school program. And I focused on creating a English only school, a Montessori type of learning school where, you know, you could come in, I could, uh, the, the Chinese teachers would help out with uh, the different subjects that they need to help out in. But primarily, there's a lot of English immersion in reading, writing, and even math to make sure that they get that step up. And, you know, it worked out for me pretty well. As I'm a native English speaker, I can hire teachers. And if they're difficult, I can fire teachers. And all of a sudden, I'm teacher Victor <laughs> and do all this stuff also. Right. And is that school still going? That school, uh, actually, I opened up two branches and about five or six years out, I sold them. Good for you. And now what are you doing? Well, right now I have created my own company. It's called Three Square, as in three square meals a day. And what we do is we provide a lot of different services to make sure that we help restaurants not only survive, but thrive. And I utilize a lot of different cloud kitchen business models to do that. I just want to go through this a little bit because in my mind, a cloud kitchen is I don't have a place to eat. I don't have any waiters or waitresses. All I have is a, like a, PO, a POS and an ordering system and a kitchen that can just pump out food. And then maybe I have four or five of them in the same building, maybe on different floors. And each one of them, one is a, and I'm simplifying, yeah? One's a pizza place, one's a burger place, one's a Chinese food place, one's a sushi place, whatever. I get the order, I deliver it. I get the order, I deliver it, that kind of thing. But it sounds like you're doing something a little bit different than that, no? Yeah, uh, I mean, I created a term, we sort of call it, uh, I guess, a digital food court network. And the way I looked at it is the majority of my earnings and revenue will definitely come out of delivery. You know, the food pandas of the world, the grabs and gojeks and stuff will also have pickup. But I want to leave a small area for dine in so people could come in, pick up their food. And for convenience, they could sit in the place uh, in the back where the kitchens are. I actually cut out little sections. Each kitchen is probably about 20 square meters in size. It's not big. It's not too huge. And they can make up to six different individual brands in that location or in that kitchen. So if I have, let's say eight kitchens in one location, and let's say on average, there's three brands in a kitchen, I have 24 different unique brands in one location. Wow, so what you're not doing is you're not taking an existing rest restaurant and cloudifying it. You're taking your own ideas and saying, I wanna build a cloud kitchen here, but I wanna have eight of these kitchens, three different types, whatever it is, three different kitchens, eight different types of food, and I'm gonna have 24 different types of food. And it's, 
if I order from any one of those kitchens, I could sit in the same place and eat. Yeah. So I could be sitting with my burger and somebody could be having a pizza kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. So what, uh, similar to a food court, when you're walking around, I want to grab a bit of this. I want to take a little bit of that. Uh, I want that concept to sort of be there, but update it for the 2021 and beyond. And yeah, I think the cool thing is uh, because of my experience, I have brands that I own. And then there are other kitchens that I rent out to restaurants that are popular and I help them grow their business. And I also help them market, do analysis. I help them create new brands. And all of a sudden we get to grow in this ecosystem together. So what kind of technology have you employed to do this? And did you write that tech yourself or did you outsource it to a company that does sort of like the POS and data driven types of systems? Yeah, great question. I, I work with a very, very good partner that is very techish, right? And we sort of complement one another as far as that go. They were a small POS company out of Taiwan. And I sort of told them my needs and what we can build out of that. And they were able to build all these different things that I would need to run a very, very smooth and very efficient cloud kitchen setup. So what does it look like on the inside? I mean, the kitchen part, I understand what does the technology setup look like? If I go to an existing restaurant today, one that wasn't built specifically for cloud, right? They have like five or six different things. Like you said, they've got a machine from Food Panda, a machine from Grab Food, a machine from Gojek Food. It's very confusing. And they must have just orders coming in and out. And I've always thought, shouldn't there be a system that sits on top of all of them? And that feeds into it? Like, how does this work in your shops? Okay. Let me use a scenario. Imagine if I have just one kitchen, forget about all eight kitchens. Yep. In one kitchen, I have six brands. Generally speaking, it means you have one POS, and then you have six Food Panda pads, and then you have six Uber Eats pads, and then you have six you know, Gojek pads, and you may have up to 20-something pads, and you basically like you have one guy just figuring all those accept buttons and then entering into the POS. Uh, now our POS and our, our our system now is actually configured so everything's integrated. So you can take all of the delivery platform tablets and put them away, turn them off, and all of the orders will go directly into the one POS at your station, at your kitchen. Right. And then that's also connected to the front desk area and it's also connected to the front where you can actually see screens of what orders are being prepared and what orders are finished for pickup. So it's like a tote board in a way. No, you know, you're completely correct. Like a hospital or an airport, you see what flights are coming in, what flights are delayed, what flights are on time, what it's canceled, you know exactly what's going on, what gate you got to go to to go to. <laughs> um, you have all the information there. So the riders or the customers aren't standing in front with, uh, I guess, my front of the desk staff and saying, is my order done yet? Is right. my order done yet? Is right. my order done yet? So do you have the name of the driver like on that thing as well? Um, unfortunately, we don't, but that's a pretty good idea. We have the delivery platform brand. We have the ID number, the, 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 the restaurant brand. We have the ID number and, and we have this kind of information. I've been thinking about this for so long. Anyway, are your parents like, are they even shocked or surprised that like you're right back in the food business and you've just basically next gen this with automation and technology? It is funny, right? 
again, I didn't take over the family business. You know, a lot of Asian families, they expect the oldest son to do that. I totally didn't do that because I told them I'm not interested in whatever it is you're doing, but I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to go be a rich banker on Wall Street, but thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. 20 years later, I'm now, I guess, some sort of startup entrepreneur slash restaurateur. And I think uh, it is it is pretty funny. I, I have... I have these conversations with my dad and, uh, you know, if you could imagine 10 years ago when I started in food tech, he's like, who's going to even do this stuff? I don't get it. I don't, he's like, he didn't get it at all because he was part of this whole ambiance of a restaurant. Go in, you enjoy the chatter, you enjoy the wine with the food and the general chow's chicken, you enjoy all this different stuff. And that's how you, that's how you give a, a nice night out to, you know, the friends, the colleagues, the wife, the husband, whatever it is. So he didn't really get that part of the game, but like, you know, now he's 70 and he gets it, you know, yes. like, like 10 years later, he's like, all right, this is where the game's going. And this is what all the young guys are doing now. And this is how it works. I love it. I mean, come on, the irony cannot be lost on you. Your parents leave Taiwan, according to you, for a better life in the United States. They go there, they kill it. They open, you said 40 restaurants and a bunch of different brands. Your aunts and your uncles all come over, get their MBAs, open restaurants, open businesses. They're all killing it, right? It's great. And you're like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to Taiwan and do my own thing. <laughs> and then you're right back in the food business, but in a modern way. It's so cool, no? Yeah, the, the, the irony is definitely not lost on me. <laughs> and uh, I, I can only say that, yeah, I, I, you know, Taiwan initially was just a place every year I do a, a you know like a like a, a head count on myself just to see what's going on what am I doing am I just bumming around and right. or am I really trying to do something and one year becomes five years and then all of a sudden next thing you know you're actually building something and doing a lot of different things here you have a lot of connections within the ecosystem and uh yeah and and Parents turn around. They they turn around and start supporting a little bit. Yeah, now they're now they're bragging about you to their friends, which is awesome. When when did you start this business? Officially, if you look at like the certification of everything, it was October of last year. Oh, okay. So this is new. This is pretty new. But I've had this idea for quite some time. And, you know, if you think about it, I've had the idea for, I don't know, a few years. Cloud kitchens are not new per se. I've taken it and put my own little spin on it. But um, I was able to very quickly focus, write a deck, put together a P&L, raise the money, and then all of a sudden, I'm rolling. Have you raised what's angel money, venture capital money? What's the status of that? I just raised, uh, well, not just. I raised uh, earlier this year 1.2 million U.S., and uh, yeah, it's uh, mostly Taiwan investors and VCs. I have several from uh, outside, though, like Singapore and Malaysia. And I'm kicking off this round. And when I finish fundraising there, I'm going to continue expanding in Taiwan, but jump into some countries in Southeast Asia and North Asia. So how many locations do you have now in Taiwan? I have one location open now, and I'll have three locations open in the next two to three months. And I'm not familiar with the sort of size of city breakdown in Taiwan, but are all of your stores, all of your kitchens now in Taipei or are there other sort of satellite cities where you've opened up locations? So these three will be in Taipei. And basically it's, I, I break everything down by district. I know like per district in 
uh, Taiwan or in Thailand or in these different markets, what the top districts are from an order perspective. And then you can do a lot of analysis on, let's say, uh, you know, population size coming in and out and if it's a, a key zone and not. Uh, so I'm focusing on going to places that have a lot of activity, that they're in the heart of the city. I'm not going to be in, you know, the countryside of things, not early on for sure. It'll definitely be in key cities and key markets uh, in Taiwan and across Asia. Do you have a data team that does this for you? I don't have a data team, that's for sure. Uh, but I do have a, a couple people that are savvy enough to help pull out data on a daily basis, analyze that data, break it down for not just myself, but also for the restaurant partners so they can analyze and see how they're doing on a, you know, a rolling daily, weekly, monthly situation. And we can eat really, the great thing is taking that data, putting it together and giving suggestions and opinions to help push them in a certain way. Right. And is your POS also connected to your order management system, which means that connected directly to your suppliers? So like if you need more broccoli, it just like automatically knows how much broccoli you've used and knows it's a Tuesday and that you're going to need like whatever amounts of broccoli to do, or you haven't automated that part of it yet. Now, Michael, we're like reading from the same book. So that's something that hasn't happened yet, but that's definitely in the product pipeline because once all these things are sort of connected, the ideas really make the life of a restaurateur as, you know, efficient and simple as possible. So they can focus on other things. Yeah. I mean, the idea that I've, that I've been thinking about is once you do that for your own stores, right? Then you can connect every other restaurant, even the ones you that you're in which you're not involved, to your order management system, so that that gets automated. And at some point, you own the supply chain, right? Which is can be just as valuable as owning the restaurant chain. Oh, for sure, for sure. The minute that you can really own a part of that supply chain, it would be a tremendous business. I agree with you. And do you ever think about having your own delivery system? In other words, if you can get rid of the three PLs, right? Because at some point, you have to pay Grab, you have to pay GoJack. Is there a way you can sort of white label the optimization of delivery and then just own that yourself as well? And then re in reverse, sell that as a service to other people too? Well, this is what we're doing right now. Uh, we are working with the 3PLs and obviously they spent millions upon millions of dollars marketing themselves, getting the population to know them, trust them and use them. And what I'm doing is I will be launching our own website that will also have delivery services. But here's the thing, we're gonna focus on orders that only are above a certain basket size. So for example, it would be like $35 and above. I'm happy to send these bigger orders out, these uh, corporate orders or big family orders because it just makes sense financially. For the for the little orders that are like a couple bucks, I might as well let you know the, the, the grabs and gojeks and food pandas of the world take care of it. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is you don't wanna use the negative gross margins that they're using for growth. You'd rather have the positive gross margins of big size orders you're happy to give sort of proprietary service and better delivery for big orders exactly. because that makes the most sense, right? And that helps the brand out. Yeah, uh, no, you're 100% correct. And then the other thing that makes our website a little bit special is with one shopping cart, you can actually order from all the brands from one location. Right. So if somebody really wanted to kill me, they could order one item from each brand and I have 20 brands in one location. Right. I'll take the you know, French fries from this place, a slice of pizza from that yeah, kind of one thing. Coke from, you know, that brand. Oh, but I'll take a Sprite from that third brand. Right. Just to mess with you. Is it clear to your consumers 
that this is a cloud business? Do you market it that way or not really? Like, in other words, does it look like it's coming from a burger joint or does it look like it's coming from a cloud kitchen kind of thing? You know what I mean? I, I do. I do it. I, I don't think it looks like an industrial factory. Not That's um, not what I meant, but you know what I mean though, right? But yeah, but I but I think it's set up in a way that it's interesting to to, to mo most people, right? Like yeah. uh, uh, it's definitely not like the standard, you know, one stall where everybody just goes to that stall and orders food thing. They you just go. There's only one front of the house where they go to for orders and stuff like that. Uh, but we, I think our design's pretty good. It's pretty clean, and uh, people appreciate that. And we're we're in we're not in any alleys or stuff like that. We're on main streets, right? So. People, we welcome people to come in and pick up food or even use dine-in as for convenience. Can I order there as well? If I'm just walking by and think like, yeah, I just want to get that pizza from um, from three, three Square. Can I just walk in and order? You can. We do not do cash right now just to make everything easy. So what happens is our front of the house staff has to, you know, we have greeters that greet everyone who comes in and sort of see what's going on. And if you're like, hey, I just checking it out. What they would do is, well, you could use Food Panda or Uber Eats, or you can go on our website and you can order from there. Ah, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so it's like walking into the hotel and booking on a Goda. You're like, here's how you order and we'll deliver to here, which is where you already are kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We figured, you know, it, you know, everyone's on their phone like crazy these days anyways. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's a natural extension of that kind of, uh, you know, I love my phone culture and just sort of use your own thing to do it. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody coming in and going, oh, for God's sakes, don't make me use my phone to do that. They're like, okay, just give me one second and, pee -pee -pee and do it. Yeah, really straightforward. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's only been a year. I don't want to talk about Taiwan so much anymore, but like you said, you know where the districts are in other places. Like if you come to Thailand, do you know where you'd put one of these things? Yeah, of course. So, yeah. so I mean, like, you know, Thailand's a very interesting market and the, you know, Thai bot you know, is equivalent, it's close to what the NTD is like numerically. So it's actually very easy for me to remember, for example, how many Thai baht equal a US dollar. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's one thing that's always a nice shortcut. The other thing is because I uh, have experience with Thailand and managing Thailand before, uh, you have these different areas and different pockets that definitely you want to target and you want to make sure you get into. And off the top of my head, I don't recall what they are, uh, there, uh, but uh, it's very apparent, you know, from the data that shows this is where you want to be for your first, second, and third location. Yeah, I mean, I could probably just pull them out of thin air because I live here. Is one of the stats you look at population density? In other words, if there's like a gigantic condo right there with, you know, wealthy people living in it, does it pay for you to have a shop really close to them? I think that's one of several factors that we look at. Population density is definitely a thing. You do want to look at, you know, the average basket size generated from that area or district also. And that goes into play with, you know, the, the type of socioeconomic status of that district. So all of that stuff helps uh, amongst other things. You know, normally I would ask what the impact of COVID is just because it's the elephant in the room. It has been for the last almost two years. But it seems to me like this would only benefit you more than anything. Yeah, I often say like, you know, it's it sucks to be a restaurateur in the past two years with COVID-19. But with that said, uh, Three Square is doing very well. Uh, you know, numbers are just, you know, spiking daily, weekly, monthly. It just keeps growing and pushing forward. Are you surprised at the speed of growth? I mean, it's a killer idea, right? 
I will humbly say that I am not that surprised. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, it's a good idea without COVID before yeah, sure. it really, you know, locked everyone down, right? It's just, you know, saving a lot of time, effort, and resources for restaurants. And now with COVID, it's something that's even better. You know, the average restaurant, they got to spend 250000 U.S. just to start on day one. And now all of a sudden, I'm turning that into almost zero. There's always a million and one reason why Grab or somebody else is going to take your lunch, right? But the other side of that story is Grab generates the majority of their GMV from Grab Rides yep. or Grab Food. They're not paying attention to this part. The analogy that I use with them, and, and again, tell me where I'm wrong here, was you know, Google was going to go into the insurance business and then they were going to go into the restaurant business and they were going to go into the delivery business. But the bottom line is their DNA is about search and ads. And they make 98% of their revenue from ads and from search. And the idea that they're just going to rock up into like even the phone business, which they can't get right, is just anathema to me. But just because a company is big doesn't mean it's going to succeed at every little thing that they do. As a matter of fact, if they try to go outside of their core business, they generally fail. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. Uh, and you are right. They put their, they have a lot of smart, talented, hardworking people doing a lot of different things. They're not going to hit it out of the park on each, every different service that they have out there. Yeah, right. No, no. Um, that's not possible. Their bread and butter, like you said, their DNA is in a certain area. Now it's sort of ancillary to that, but are they spending the time, the budget, the resources, the manpower to make that part grow the way the other parts are growing. I might as well spend time on my bread and butter guy. And, and, and that's what they do. Look, the big department store companies in Thailand, like the Central Group, the Mall Group, and the CP Group should have been the biggest winners in the e-commerce business because they had the warehouses, they had the logistics, and they had the brands. And yet they never did it because when they said, wait a second, I have to invest 20 million bucks or 30 million bucks to build this. And my five-year ROI is going to be what? Well, grandpa's going to be zero. Never mind, I'll build another mall. But getting out of that mindset's hard, right? It's very difficult. I mean, and, and that happens to everybody, not just the traditional businesses, but the super apps, the startups as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they agree. get stuck in their thing as well. They're like, I'm good at this. Why? I guess I'll try a little bit over there, but uh, we'll see, you know? How do you see expansion looking like? Like, do you use any of the traditional ways that restaurants have expanded? Like, would you franchise stuff or do you want to own all of it so that it all accrues to you? Or do you want to franchise it, take the franchise revenue? Because one of, the, one of the great things about a franchise business is, besides the fact that you get some revenue off the franchise, is that it allows other people to be kind of micro-entrepreneurs as well, if that makes sense. So it's beneficial to society in a way, yeah? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, my dad ran a bunch of restaurants that he created the branding for himself. He also was a Subway franchisee. Yeah, I love know? it, right. So, so I think franchising has its place, especially for Three Square. We have our own brands that we operate right now, and I want to franchise those brands out. And what I want to do is, of course, the, the normal entrepreneurs that want to open something from scratch, that's great. I also want to help out existing restaurants, and I can sort of plug in yep. our brands into them. They already have existing kitchen, existing staff. Uh, you know, They pay all the money. These are all fixed costs for them. Yep. By plugging in, in something like one or two or five of our brands, all of a sudden they're able to make more money and I'm able to help them out generate more income. And that's another way that I think is a pretty fun, low or no capex way to grow the business. 
Yeah, and then you also install your technology there. You know what they're ordering, and then that gets back to the sort of supply chain business that we were talking about before. So it's really a fascinating yeah. and interesting way to grow. It's in, in a way, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse business, which is one of my favorite kinds. It's like, I'll give you this, but in the back end, I'm going to get all this other stuff. It's really a great idea. Is there anything I missed? Did you say you're raising another round? Oh, yeah. You caught me right now. Uh, starting in August, I'm raising a, I'll mention it, a $7 million round. I think with that $7 million, it allowed me to really beef up a lot of the things that I want to do, but more importantly, speed up the process of everything. And I think in general, uh, you know, if you see something good, what you want to do is figure out how to get more, more money to really add gasoline and, and, and increase your presence and growth quickly. Again, just from, a, just from an investment standpoint, the, the first round that you raised, and it's, I'm generalizing a little bit, right, is... That's like experimental money. It's like, I think this is going to work. I'm pretty sure it's going to work. And here's the P&L that I built in the pro forma. But seed stage and angel money is really just funding an experiment. But now it's growing. If it's working, then now you, just, now you have growth capital. It's a completely different animal. And you're right. If, if you can put fuel on that fire and not mess up the growth, because growth is hard as well, no matter how much money you have, you can build a pretty big business, yeah? No, I agree with you 100%. Like... With my seed investments, I was as prepared as possible. I have a nice pedigree for this kind of stuff. Uh, but like you said, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a gamble, right? Uh, now it's more of a, you know, the product fit is already proven a little bit in Taiwan. And now I just want to raise that capital to really expand quickly in Taiwan and then outside in uh, the rest of Asia. And where are you going to raise this money? Are you going to go to the Singapore guys and even some of the guys in, uh, in the United States as well? Interestingly enough, uh, I've talked to a lot of different guys, the Singaporeans, the Indonesians, the Japanese, the Americans, and the Europeans. Um, and it's very interesting how different, I guess, VCs from different countries view things. And uh, it's always a fun conversation. And, and uh, it's, yeah, I, but in general, it's been quite positive. And I would honestly say in food tech, uh, cloud kitchens, virtual brands, this kind of stuff is like a top three hot item these days. It's for yeah, sure. I can imagine. Can you just give me an example? And you don't have to say like this country's VCs thought this way and this one's thought the other way. But if you can just say like, here's here's something that I heard that was different than something else that I heard, it would just be interesting, I think, for the listeners to know the difference. Does that make sense, the question? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think you, you, you sort of smiled a little bit when I used the word pedigree. And that's because um, I... It was used on me today, actually. Really? Uh, I was, it was used, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's uh, a more European VC. Yeah. And uh, they were like, you know, we had a very nice conversation. And they were like, well, Victor, we look at your background. We look at your pedigree and everything lines up and it makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and I appreciate that. And so that it sort of checks off that box that I've done A, B, and C. Right. Whereas, let's say some other markets, they may continue to ask me for maybe a good five to 10 minutes. What do you know about Taiwan? Right. What do you know about Southeast Asia? Right. What, right why right. do you know Singapore? What's your deal with Thailand? How would you, how do you even expand into Bangkok? Right. And, you know, for this particular, you know, comparison, the dude just, uh, the VC literally was like, yeah, you have the background and pedigree that you ran Southeast Asia, you ran North Asia. Okay. And and moved on into other more interesting things for him. I love it. Okay. That's a great example. It's a great example. I'm going to let you go if the, unless there's anything else you want to mention. What Maybe you can just tell my listeners what the best way is to get in touch with you. 
yeah, just come find us at threesquarekitchens.com. Uh, Google Three Square Kitchens and um, find us on Facebook too or Instagram. And uh, yeah, I just appreciate the support. I appreciate the time, Michael. Thank you, Victor J. Chow, the founder and CEO of Three Square. This was awesome.